And if you have a Coffee House Bible, we're going to be on page 853. That is Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. Uh, today we're asking we're asking a big question as we start a new series, Eating with Jesus. This is part one, the Last Supper. The, the big question is this, why did Jesus die and rise? You know what? It's so uh, perfect that I was just sharing the table, and little Betsy Mitchell was, was in our group, and she said this, just out of the mouth of, out of the mouth of babe. Mom's nervous back there. She's like, what did my daughter say? She said, how did Jesus' blood wash us? That's so weird. I was like, yes, that is exactly what I'm preaching on today. It is so weird. I made a new friend this morning who, who basically asked this question in a, in a variety of ways. Why did Jesus have to die and rise? Why couldn't he be like any other good dad and just forgive? Why did he have to do this? This seems like a lot. Even Jewish people celebrating Passover, you have the blood of the lamb. How come this lamb had to die so that our family could be rescued? It's this question that just keeps coming up in the story of Scripture. Why did Jesus have to die and rise? I think it's a really good question. It is, to me, the biggest question, the deepest question. It is a question I have asked. It's a question that even as young as a child, we're, we're contemplating, what does this mean? How could he have done this? But there's an element where a lot of us are here on Easter Sunday because you're thinking not just how could he have done this, but you're thinking how could he have done this for me? Uh, there's this new song, it's called All Sufficient Merit, and there's some of the lyrics there that I've, I've just been really meditating on. All sufficient merit, shining like the sun, a fortune I inherit by no work I have done. How could this happen for me? What have I done to be worthy of this sacrifice? What have I done to be worthy of resurrection life? And so we come to this question at very different places, some from a place of devotion and worship, some from a place of confusion or curiosity, and some from a place of antagonism and real skepticism. This is the deepest question, though, and so that raises this, this tension, that a shallow answer to a deep question is a, a foul anchor. If you're in the nautical world, or even if you're not, it still applies. A, a foul anchor is something where you drop the anchor and it's insecure in some way. A foul anchor is when it gets wrapped around itself, and it's not, it doesn't even make it to the bottom. It doesn't hold you there. It's insecure. Does that make sense? But a foul anchor is also when you drop it down and you, you get it caught on something so that you can't get it out. In other words, when you give a shallow answer to a deep question, you can either end up insecure or just stuck. You can end up insecure where you're, you're kind of flappable and shakable and you're drifting, or where you're paralyzed and you just can't get away from this thing. It can haunt you. This question is one of those. So today, as I kind of step into this big, big question, why did Jesus die and rise on Easter weekend, I'm aware that a shallow answer to a deep question is a foul anchor. But you know what I'm also aware? That when Jesus gave us the meaning of his death and resurrection, just, just imagine this. We've been working through the Gospel of Matthew a lot this year. And if you just look at the Gospel of Matthew, and it's, it's 28 chapters, it's a big book. It'll take you a couple of hours to read it. And if you add up all the things that Jesus says in the Gospel about why he died and why he was raised from the dead, you only get about three or four lines total. 
Most of them were predictions about what's coming. He says it three or four times. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to be raised. He, he says that three or four times as he's on the way to Jerusalem. This is what I'm headed toward. But it's not really an answer to why. So really, Matthew only has one answer. It comes in Matthew 20, verse 28. And he says, he's dying. This is it. This is the answer. To give his life as a ransom for many. There's a big gospel with very little content. But there is a scene where Jesus truly answers this question about why he died and why he was raised. But Jesus gave us a meal, not a message. You see, when Jesus wants to share the meaning of death and resurrection, he doesn't give a sermon. He gives a few symbols, bread and and cup. And so somehow we have to figure out what is happening in the bread and the cup when we share the table that actually explains this in the fullest way Why was it that Jesus thought it was more appropriate for us not to get an answer, not to get a sermon, not to give a message, but to get a meal instead? So today I run the risk of having a message about the Last Supper when actually Jesus is just saying, I want you to do the Last Supper, and then by doing, you'll actually come to see it. So forgive me, may God be with us as I try to give a message about meaning when actually he gave us a meal. But that's where we're diving in today, is the Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26. And by the way, I'm wearing a suit today. Some of you have been staring at me like, what is happening? <laughs> and then I saw Michael in his, his jacket and vest. Uh, my son and I wanted to, to dress up for Easter. Uh, you can wear almost anything you want here. I'm not going to say anything you want. Uh, but next week, I'll probably have a t-shirt and jeans on. So if this is your first time, this is not the dress code. Uh, for Oikos Church. It can be if you want to wear it. By the way, Breon, you look awesome today. (laughs) My man, yeah. Unplanned also, so. Uh, So let's dive into the Last Supper in Matthew chapter 26. And what I think is happening in this scene is that Jesus is framing it around the present, what's happening, the past, what has happened, and the future, what will happen. And so that's going to be our frame as we walk through this text. We're going to look at present, past, and future. And so if you're taking notes, that's kind of a little structure to kind of help us along the way. The, the first place he goes is this present of what is happening in the scene itself. This starts in, in verse 17. He says this, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he's setting the scene. And the scene is set in the city of Jerusalem at Passover week. You need to understand there's something really special about Passover. You see, in the Jewish religion, three times a year, all the men of Israel had to, they were required by Mosaic law to travel to Jerusalem to partake in the feast. And they didn't travel by themselves. They brought their families along with them. And so massive amounts of people are immigrating for a short time, almost like a a religious, um, man, I'm blanking on the word, the word where you go, pilgrimage, thank you, a a religious pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. 
there's hundreds of thousands of people coming to Jerusalem and to its suburbs, so to speak. And Jerusalem, it can't even contain all these people. And so they're just camping on the hillsides and the countryside. Some are finding places like the Mount of Olives. That seems to be uh, this place that Jesus and his guys go to quite often. And so they're packing in houses, hundreds of thousands of people. And Jesus comes in this scene this week, and he's raising everybody's temperature. Because when he comes in from Galilee with his new family, his family is agitating everyone. He comes in as if he's the king of the place. And his people are saying that he is the king of the place. The Jerusalem people are saying, who is this guy? And they're like, this is the prophet. This is the son of David. This is the Messiah, the king. And he doesn't stop there. That's just where he starts. He goes into the temple the next day and he curses it and cleanses it. He says, I'm going to destroy this place. The king is coming and he's going to destroy the temple that we're all here to worship in. He keeps confronting the chief priest, everyone who somebody seems to be getting into an argument with this man, and he's condemning them to hell. He's saying, woe to you. You are like your father, the devil. He's raising the temperature in the city. And by this point in the week, Passover, the big feast why everyone is here, is at hand. Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a seven-day celebration. Passover is the kind of centerpiece of it. By this point in Jewish history, they basically become the same thing. It's just honored as like a a big seven-day week off with Passover, this holy festival right in the middle. So he's, he's asking, they're asking Jesus, where do you want to celebrate the Passover? And he replied, go into the city, Jerusalem, to a certain man and tell him, and this is one of those Jedi tricks, The teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your your oikos, your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and he prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. Now, in this scene, Jesus seems to be celebrating Passover about 12 to 24 hours earlier than everybody else in town. The Jewish day begins at evening. And so it technically is Passover, but it would be sort of like celebrating Thanksgiving at 12.01 on Thursday morning. You're you're a little early, but technically it's still Thanksgiving. But Jesus understands that he doesn't have the full day. Something needs to happen when everyone else is slaughtering the lambs. He has some work to be doing that he's fully aware of. So who is Jesus celebrating with? You see it highlighted on the screen his disciples, the 12. Now, this is really unusual because Passover is a family gathering. It's a a family feast. Yes, the head of the household has to come, but he brings his children. And in fact, the children are the ones guiding the conversation. It's a family affair. Little ones, by the way, that's part of why Jesus is basing our Lord's Supper, our table, our breaking bread, our communion, our Eucharist, whatever you call it. He's He's basing it on this Passover meal that was a family affair, which is why I can have conversations with Betsy and Evie as as we're doing it. So where's his family? You see, Jesus is somehow reconstituting. He's making a new family here. He's saying, these are my brothers and my sisters. These are my, my mother and my father. He's said this over and over and over, but it takes shape once more right here. He shows us this picture 
of a new family. Here's a couple of scholars writing on this. They say the meal was normally eaten by a family or household group in oikos together. And Jesus is redefining who his brothers and sisters are. It's a family meal, another one says. This is why Jesus was pulling his disciples out of their families and organizing the Passover meal with them because he was creating an altogether new family. So what is it that holds this family together? We are not held in common by common race or common education, common income, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort, one scholar says. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. He's making a new family here. And the Passover is a, a picture of this new family. But it doesn't stop there. Let's, let's take a little look at this family. It says, while they were eating. And if you want to underline this, because it, this same phrase is going to happen again in a few verses. And this is how we kind of know how he's structuring this. While they were eating, eating the Passover meal, he said this, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. We can make a few observations about Jesus' family already. <laughs> One of them is a betrayer. And if you kind of know the story, all of them are going to abandon him by the end of the night. One of them is a denier. And so Jesus' family is not presented as this kind of perfect people who have it all together, it seems to be cast as a band of misfits who still somehow, when Jesus has one night to live, chooses to spend it with them, to wash their feet, and to be present with them. One of you will betray me, and it says they were very sad. One scholar, he, he translates this, horrified. And they began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And of course, there's one betrayer. But there's another sense where he actually means all of them. This is a, a type scene in Scripture. It's a hyperlink because something is, he's linking to that's, that's happening right here. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Now, this is one of those customs, like Shelby was talking about, that the college students may have done last Wednesday when they celebrated Passover. But the Passover feast started by everyone at the table dipping into the bowl of karpas. It, it seems you might take a piece of lettuce or celery and you would dip it and swirl it into a bowl that was really salty. Why? Well, we're not exactly sure, but the oldest interpretation of why you would dip into the bowl at Passover is the first thing. is Basically, is an explanation for how we got here. So, if Passover is a celebration for the exodus from Egypt, how did we get into Egypt? Where did all of this start? Which started out with a band of 12 brothers. And these 12 hated one of them because he was so special. And so they plotted to murder him, but then instead decided, what if we sold him into slavery in Egypt? You remember the story? They sold him for 20, 30 pieces of silver. And after they sold him, do you remember what they did? They took his special coat of many colors that showed how special he was to his father, and it says they swirled it in blood. 
So the karpas, the beginning, while they were eating, Jesus is saying, I want to explain how we got here. I want to explain how a group of 12 can betray a brother who's beloved by his father, except he's not talking about Joseph, is he? He's talking about himself. If we want to understand death and resurrection, we need to understand how Jesus in this moment is redefining the moment around himself. He's using ancient symbols that may not make sense to us, they may be unfamiliar to us, but he's using ancient symbols in new ways that are all very Jesus-centered. So he says, whoever dipped their hand into the bowl, but everyone at the table has already dipped their hand into the bowl. And so they go around saying, is it me, is it me, is it me? And then he says this, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. What this means is that Jesus isn't caught off guard by your betrayal. He already knows it's coming. You see, at any moment, Jesus didn't even have to come. He is not a victim to circumstances. He is not unaware of your schemes. He is fully here on purpose in his own time because the Father willed this. At any moment, he could have snapped his fingers and passed through the crowd as he had done many times before. He could have called 12 legions of angels, even from the cross itself. He could have ended this. You are not the fully responsible, but you are responsible for you. So, woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, you have said so. So we get this picture of a new family. It's a new family that's a family of betrayers and deniers and abandoners, a family of misfits who are still here in the presence of Jesus invited into his oikos. That's the present of what's happening, but let's, let's look at past. There's an, that cue, while they were eating, happens again in verse 26. So we know he's kind of shifting gears into something else. While they were eating... Jesus took bread. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, you see, the, the Passover feast is actually organized around several blessings, they, the cups. And so, blessed are you, our Lord and God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. And four times you say this blessing, and then at one point you, you take bread in the Passover, and you say, blessed are you, our Lord and God, who brings forth bread from the earth. Jesus is doing the Passover in ancient ways, but he's, he's looking back very much at bread, except he's given a new definition. So he, he broke it, and it says he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. He doesn't say, this is the bread of your affliction. He doesn't say, this is to remember the people in Egypt. He says, this is to remember me, my body. Now, body is a word that's already been used in this section of Scripture. His body was previously anointed for burial by a woman who came and had costly perfume. She anointed his his body to prepare him for what? For death and for burial. So when we see this word body again, we should be thinking death. We should be thinking burial. We should be thinking the cross because he's been talking about it for chapter after chapter. This is, this is my body. But this is a really strange way to talk at the, at the Passover feast. 
this is my body, it's, it's the bread. But then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. So he takes a cup. Now, cup would have been really common. Again, there's four cups at Passover. But this one, he, again, redefines around himself in a really special way. So I just want to take a step back and just do a quick biblical theology of why food and drink might be really meaningful to people. Maybe not to Americans. Um, maybe not to people living so many thousands of years after the events of the Passover. But just step into the story of Scripture very quickly, and then we'll, we'll dive back into this section. Start at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. What is the symbol of salvation, the symbol of blessing? In the Garden, the symbol of blessing is an abundance of food in the presence of God. Salvation, in other words, is, from the beginning, eating with God. That, that's how it's symbolized. So what is judgment? What is damnation on, on the other hand? It is removal from the presence of God, and it is, instead of abundance of food, it's scarcity. Now, this trajectory that we see in Genesis 2 and 3 plays out throughout the story. You see these moments of abundance and blessing to eat with God. One of the first times the Lord shows up to somebody in Scripture, He shows up as they're eating. It's eating in the presence of God. Or you can think of uh, even the Exodus. You, you need to kill the lamb and then it will be rescue from, from the destroyer. Blessing is, one scholar says, not only that God's people can eat bread and wine, but they can eat and drink it with their God. And so they go through Egypt and they go, they go out of Egypt because of eating with God. And then as soon as they're out of Egypt, they go and they eat with God on the mountain. And then out of there, they're sustained by bread with God in the wilderness. And they're going to a land flowing with milk and honey in the promised land. Every symbol of salvation is an abundance of eating it with God. Even after their exile, after the, the times of scarcity, when the prophets say it's all going to be cut down, the vineyards are going to be no more, it's all going to run dry. That's when the prophets start saying, but one day there's going to be a great banquet with the best rich food and the best wine, and the Messiah is going to come. He's going to allow you to eat with God again. The hope of Scripture from beginning to end is of eating with God. Jesus takes these symbols in this section here, and he redefines that picture of salvation, of eating with God, abundance of food and drink, in the presence of God, and Jesus is saying, this is happening right now. Bread and cup, the cup that was promised, the cup of wrath, yes, the cup of judgment, yes, but the cup of blessing, the cup of the Messiah, it's all happening right here. But this phrase, blood of the covenant, is really important, I think. Because at at this moment in the Passover feast, the blood that everyone is thinking of, it's not the blood of a cup, it's the blood of a lamb. The, The core kind of event of Passover is the slaughtering of the lambs. It's it's happening on this day as they're eating. The lambs are slaughtered. They have to go to the temple to do this work. They slaughter the lambs, and then you remember what they do with the blood. They they paint it over the doorpost of the home to remember how the destroyer passed over. Blood is central to Passover. But Jesus is saying, my blood is central to Passover. It's really striking that there are actually no lambs ever recorded in the Last Supper. We see it four times. 
but there doesn't actually appear to be lamb, which makes sense because the lambs only began to be offered on this day. The temple really isn't even open for business to slaughter the lambs for the day of preparation until later, maybe nine in the morning, because they have 200,000 people to slaughter the lambs for. Tomorrow's going to be a busy day when they wake up in the morning. And so Jesus doesn't seem to have been there yet. There's no lamb on the table. One scholar says, because the lamb of God was at the table. He's saying that my blood is taking the place of the blood of a lamb. The blood of the lamb could only point to this reality that rescues you from destruction, that rescues you from death. This claim, this ownership that, that God's saying, I want to rescue you, you are mine, you are my firstborn. It's happening through his blood. But this phrase is actually a quotation from another section. So yes, think of Passover lamb, but when you think of blood of the covenant, we must also think of covenant. Look at, look at this. Here's, here's a, a quotation. It's a hyperlink to Exodus 24. This is Exodus 24. So just, they've, they've been rescued from Egypt. The manna, the quail, the, the sustenance, the law at Sinai. It's just been given. And then as soon as they finish reading the law, look what happens. Moses, they, they sacrifice these animals and they, they pour their blood into the altar. And then he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant. Okay, so what is the blood of the covenant? This phrase that Jesus uses, what is it? The blood of the covenant is where you say, may it be to me if I fail to to keep this covenant. It's where you're saying, blood, death, be upon me if I don't keep my promise, my end of the deal. The end of the deal is here symbolized by the blood of an ox. But they're sprinkling on people, and the people are saying, I am good for it. The blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then look what happens as soon as they make the, the blood of the covenant. Moses, Aaron, they're the, the leaders. Nadab and Abihu, they're the high priests. And the 70 elders, they went up into Sinai, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a, a pavement made of, I like the ESV here better, something like sapphire as bright as the blue sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. Do you see the picture of salvation that's here in the Old Testament? It's through the blood of a covenant, you can come to God to enjoy the abundance of food and to eat with him. You can eat and drink in the presence of God. Sort of. (laughs) Except for this stone tablet that separates you. And so there's this layer, this veil that keeps you fully from his presence. Jesus is taking this symbol and he's saying that his blood of the covenant, he says, is being poured out. I just want to draw a a few really important images of, of death and resurrection right here. Jesus is not saying that the blood of a lamb or the blood of an ox is a seal and a promise. And he's not even saying that this is a covenant that you are making. The new covenant is introduced between two partners, God the Father and God the Son. God the Son is both the representative of the Father and the representative 
of humanity in this covenant. He's saying, my blood. He, he's saying that I am the anchor that never, never goes adrift, that never goes foul, that never paralyzes. I am the anchor that is hold secure. This is my blood of the covenant. He's, he's redefining covenant around himself. Imagine the astonishment, one scholar says, of the disciples when blessing the elements and explaining their symbolism, he departs from the script of Passover that has been reenacted by generation after generation. He shows them the bread and says, this is my body. What does that mean? Jesus is saying, this is the bread of my affliction, the bread of my suffering, because I'm going to lead the ultimate exodus and bring you the ultimate deliverance from bondage. His, his, his meal also departs from the script in another way too. When Jesus stood up to bless the food, he held up bread. All Passover meals had bread. He blessed the wine. All Passover meals had wine. But not one of the Gospels mentions a main course. There's no mention of lamb. Passover was not a vegetarian meal, of course. What kind of Passover could be celebrated without lamb? There was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. Later, he says that God contracts himself to be our savior. And the contract is signed, sealed, and delivered through the blood of his son. Signed, sealed, and delivered. In the new covenant, God's son is the representative of God's people. Therefore, the covenant is eternal and secure because it rests on God's perfect faithfulness. He looks to the past with these simple gestures of bread and wine. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. And in the meaning, we see that the new covenant, that Jeremiah promised, that Isaiah promised, that the Messiah would bring, the new covenant, the prophets say, is for the forgiveness of sins. It's to have God's law written on your heart. It won't be like the old covenant, where a lamb or an ox, a bull or a goat, this is the blood of God himself shed for us. You see, the, the logic of death and resurrection only makes sense in the storyline of Scripture, the storyline of Israel. And Jesus is saying, I am its fulfillment. The, the past is redefined. The covenant is replaced. But there's one more piece that we need to move through, the future. The future. The, the meal ends like this. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Okay. The supper ends, the Passover feast ends with another blessing. Blessed are you, our Lord and God, uh, who creates the fruit of the vine. And then you drink it and you sing the Hallel Psalms. But he says... <laughs> Blessed are you, our, our Lord and God, who creates fruit of the vine, and I'm not going to drink this one. I'm going to hold out on this. And he puts the cup down. He says, I will not drink this from now on. It's a really weird thing to say for a guy who dies the next morning. From now on. You see, there's so much promise and hope built into what he's doing here. From now on. He says, but I will drink it new in my Father's kingdom. From now on is a promise statement. He's saying, I'm, I've taken the old covenant and I've put in a new covenant, but now he says the new covenant isn't even fully complete. 
I swear to you. He puts the cup down. I will drink this again with you. And all of this, of course, goes into question the next day when he's crucified at noon. His body's taken down from the cross that afternoon. They rush him to get into a tomb before Sabbath begins. He lays in the tomb, but on that Sunday when the women found his tomb empty and the angels announced that he is risen, then they begin to make sense of what actually happens. But in the Gospel of Luke, they actually say, he was made known to us in the breaking of the bread. Somehow, in the breaking of the bread, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, are, they come to us in a brand new way. It's a, a taste. N.T. Wright, in his book, Simply Christian, he's commenting on the Lord's Supper. And he says, it's, it's almost like uh, the, the spies who go out into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and they come back with these massive grapes and this huge harvest and the abundance, and they say, look what we've got. Let's taste it. And they taste it, and they say, this is the richest stuff we've ever had. Because this is what the table begins to do. It, it is, in the moment, a feast, but it's a feast of what's coming, of what's still out in the future. It's a taste of the future. The Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, is our model of how God's world is supposed to be. It's a microcosm, one scholar says, of the way things really ought to be. And so it's this promise. There's a new family built around a new covenant who are promised a new life and a new world. And so if he lives again, then so will we. And if he eats and drinks again, as he promises, he swears it, then so will we. He leaves the meal unfinished because the story is not over. The resurrection of Jesus conquers death that Sunday. But Jesus knows that death is still pervasive. And he says, hold on, the feast is coming. So what does, this, what does this mean for us? What do, what do we do with this Last Supper scene where present, past, and future collide in the person of Jesus? I, I want to give you um, the practice for this series. It's eating with Jesus. This is our keystone habit. I say our, I mean God's people. I mean the church. I, yes, I mean Oikos Church. Jermaine said, if you're around here very often, you're going to get invited to a table. But that's not just an Oikos thing, that's a Christian thing. That's who we are. A keystone habit is a concept that Charles Duhigg writes about in The Power of Habit. And if you think of an archway, the keystone is the centerpiece that holds and gives structure to everything else. And so he says a, a keystone habit is something like a habit that has like all of these extra benefits that kind of hang on top of it. He says exercise can be a keystone habit. Exercise, for people who exercise, they tend to wake up at the consistent time. People who exercise tend to eat healthier because they're more conscious of their health. So there's extra benefits that come just by doing the one thing. But he says, really, one of the biggest keystone habits is eating together. He says, if you look at like all the road scholars, the thing they have in common across all of their differences is that they ate with their families. They, they shared meals together because somehow the family meal in these, in these contexts held something together. It held family together. It held conversation together. It held order and structure and discipline and generosity. All of that seems to be connected in some way. Of course, we're not looking at just for its benefits. In, in our story, the Christian story, eating with Jesus is the keystone habit that holds everything together. Eating with Jesus. This is the picture of salvation, eating in abundance in the presence of God. 
This is Garden of Eden stuff. This is family of Abraham stuff. This is rescue from bondage stuff. This is Jesus at the table, the bread and cup stuff. Eating with Jesus. So this series, yeah, we're going to look in some other text of where Jesus eats with people in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to look at really up, in, and out. That's, that's our kind of triad for how we think about discipleship. Up, meaning towards God. In, meaning with the church and with his people. And out, meaning with the world. And what Jesus does is he shares tables in every direction. Up, in, and out. Eating with Jesus is the keystone habit. But I just want to give a, a little structure to hold on to as we eat with Jesus every week. It's that structure past, present, and future. I'm going to move pretty quickly here because this is something we're very familiar with. But don't allow the familiarity to make it mundane. Eating with Jesus is the meaning of life. It is the deepest of the questions. It's where everything kind of begins to make sense in the breaking of the bread. In the past, Jesus is saying that I want you to remember my death. I want you to remember and practice this memorial. So we look back to the events of the cross and resurrection every week to understand what he already has done. And when we eat and drink, we remember that it is finished. That he is the lamb to end all lambs. That he is raised already. He is seated at the throne of God. And he, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. We look back to the past to remember what already is done. And I think this can shape the present. The present that I'm really mindful of here is two pieces. Identity and his presence. Identity means who we are. So if at the bread and the cup we remember what he's already done, that he is the lamb to end all lambs, that it is finished, then every week at the table I can remember who I am. And I am a part of Jesus' family, of people who he invites to his table, a, a family of misfits, not a family of perfect people, a family of abandoners, a family of deniers, but a family that he still deems worthy to sit at. When Jesus had one night to live, he chose to be with his family and to wash their feet. And every week he chooses to be with us. Oh, what dignity there is in being invited to his table. He says, you're worth it. You were worth body and blood in some way. And only that the love of God and the, the glory of God and his faithfulness to his own promises can explain. He says, I want to be with you there at the table. You see how it changes identity and it changes his presence? It also changes the future. It, it changes Paul says this whenever he's talking about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, at, at the communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's this hope that's built into the table itself that this isn't it. The death is still part of this, but one day it will be swallowed up in victory. The future hope, what we call the Lord's Supper, is a foretaste of the Lamb's Supper. There's a scene in Revelation 19 that ends the story of Scripture. It's this feast where Jesus sits at the head of a table and he eats this banquet with his people. It's not just a picture. It is a prediction. It's going to happen. And he's saying it's already starting to happen now and we can taste it. So 
last piece of this. Um, eating with Jesus, I was thinking of it almost like a rehearsal dinner. Have you ever been part of a, a wedding party that you get together the night before the wedding to do just a couple of things? One thing is you, you get all together, bride's family and the bride, and groom's family and the groom, and you get all together really to celebrate, to share stories. At, at the rehearsal, there's tears and there's laughter normally. There's celebration. There's, there's memories. All, all of this happens at the, at the dinner. But it's more than just, just celebration, right? It's a practice. You go through the motions. And by going through the motions, you, you kind of learn what you're supposed to do. You learn your steps for the next day. You learn your cues. Um, Tim Chester, in his book, he says, in a busy culture with people desperate to succeed, we practice in communion, resting on the finished work of Christ. In a fragmented culture that is radically individualistic, we practice in communion, belonging to one another. In the dissatisfied culture of constant striving, we practice in communion, receiving this world with joy as a gift from God. In a narcissistic culture of self-fulfillment, we practice in communion joyous self-denial and service. In a proud culture of self-promotion, we practice in communion humility and generosity. All these practices are habit-forming and so seep into the rest of our lives. You see, the table prepares us to be his ambassadors in the world. It prepares us to practice his presence so that we can perceive his presence elsewhere. So at the rehearsal dinner, you celebrate, you remember, you practice. But the biggest part of the rehearsal dinner is to wait. The wedding's coming. Would you close your eyes for just a second? Would you picture a table? If you have any relatives who, are, who have died in the Lord, would you draw them to mind at the table? If you have any favorite of the, the saints of old, would you picture them at the table? Reclining or seated, everyone's there. Now add hundreds, now add thousands, add myriads and myriads of every tribe and tongue and language and people. People from Asia and Africa and South America and Europe, even Australia, they can make it. United States, North America, it's a big table. But would you picture Jesus at the head of the table? You remember Jesus, he says, I'm, I'm coming back and Michael blows his trumpet and he returns and he descends and he welcomes his people in this victory party. And then after the victory parade, the feast begins. And he raises the cup. And he says, I told you I wouldn't drink it from now on and I have been waiting to drink this anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Raise your cup. And the millions and millions of people who he has adopted into his family, they raise their cup and they see his face 
and we eat with Jesus. I don't know what happens the next day or the next day or the next day, but I can't wait for that day. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Happy Easter.